0: Welcome to a life in film. I'm Elliot James Langridge, I'm an actor, writer, and apparently a podcaster, and I love film. This is the podcast that we ask our guests from in front and behind the camera how did they get their foot in the door? What was the key to unlocking their success? What's their story? To name a few of our previous guests: Toby Jones, Natalie Emmanuel, casting director Sophie Holland, George Mackay, legendary camera operator Peter Taylor, and Hugh Bonneville. Today's guest is actress Andrea Reisborough, best known for Birdman, Oblivion, Mandy and more recently Matilda and her Oscar nominated performance in the brilliant 2 Leslie. We talk about her experience of going from ITV's Doc Martin to working with Tom Cruise, her love of books, what she's reading now and why she feels calm in graveyards and of course her most embarrassing moment which just so happened to be on set with David o. Russell just so you're aware we recorded this lovely little chat with Andrea before she was nominated for best actress at the oscars i hope you enjoy episode 51 of a life in film
1: it's a life in
0: film To win such a life-changing sum of money.
1: Oh well, I feel a like hell a lot better than yesterday.
0: <laughs> what do you plan to do with 190,000 smackaroos? God, I
1: don't know. Maybe buy a house, buy something nice for my boy, you know, just have a better life. Save my soul, ran through the night, <laughs> lost in the woods. And I won't be a good mama again.
0: She blew all that money. Yeah. (laughs) Where's she been?
1: I won the lottery. I was the one who won the lottery. Help yourself. You always do. I them derelicts you spit on, we ain't partying no more. Mm -hmm. Chasing the baby. Mm -hmm. Angels keep falling.
0: too Leslie um I'm always surprised by the films that I see you in and the parts that you play because you always look so different um the arrays of hair and 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 the characters you're a chameleon but particularly in this movie it's it's such a different role um was that the thing that attracted you to this part? I mean obviously you'd worked with Michael the director before, but was that also a, a reason to do this?
1: It's a really interesting question because and I haven't actually thought about it you're making me realize something that I haven't thought about before, which is, um, I I think when I'm reading a script, it's so, uh, the, the process of connecting with whatever's on the page is so internal, if you know what I mean. But mm. the thought that I'm not like this character at all never really enters my head so um so that wouldn't have been a reason for me to do it purely because it's just not on my radar i suppose mm. is the best way to describe it so 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 no but that but that's interesting because you've made me realize something about you know reading each new project and there are yeah. some things that there are some characters that quite honestly aren't really on the page you know that there, there are they they're not always there but this this film was written by a brilliant screenwriter who was writing a love song to his mom really. And it was a very personal story for him. So aside from the fact that he's already a brilliant screenwriter and, and very talented in that respect and has a great compass of structure and narrative and all the rest of it, you know, it was, um, and it was it was such a sort of um, bare script in the sense that it no. there was, it wasn't, it wasn't a morality tale, it wasn't, fl- was you know, it's not flowery, there's no, it's just um, realism um, at its best, really. And so, and then on top of that, it was such a personal story to him that in a way, it's sort of like his, his great piece, you know, like we all have that one piece that we all want to make mm. in life that we hold with us, you know, very closely. And how strange for Ryan that now it's out in the world. So when I read it, I was just totally captivated by the story and and the person and and the fact that the script is, that we had the opportunity with the script, Michael and I, the director, who was the person who brought it to me and said, I think this would be something fantastic for us to do together. um, That we had the opportunity to dip in and dip out of somebody's life without really making a judgment about them Seeing things from their perspective, seeing all of their warts, you know, as well as their vivacity and enthusiasm and 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 love. Um, so, so that was my feeling really when I when I first read the script. That and the fact that, the, and or when I was first introduced to Leslie as a character. The other thing is that Leslie is based loosely on a, on a real life person but that person didn't live in Texas. It was a very different life. She, was, she lived in a very different world. So that, that part of creating the character was so fulfilling for Michael and I, <laughs> both being Brits, <laughs> trying to sort of carve out a Texan life. And that's a challenge and a wonderful one and a really interesting one. And the, the, that's, the, that's really the why I continue to always want to do my job is because you get to step into so many different walks of life um and it evokes a great deal of uh I think compassion and empathy and understanding you know on a as a a human being
0: it's almost like when you get that chance to play a character that's very different to yourself it's like almost free therapy you get to experience these things that hopefully you'll never experience in real life because sometimes they're quite horrific things you have to do on screen but um It's it's quite a nice process sometimes to get that emotion out and and not have to actually live it in real life.
1: It's difficult as an actor when you're then out of work, you know, to see actors not working and to have developed that relationship with their emotions where they process their emotions through their work, basically, and then not to have that outlet, Mm -hmm. Um, especially during the pandemic with theatre actors, you know, was heartbreaking, really. Um, Yeah. The film industry managed to sort of carry on, but I think a lot of, especially theatre performers, truly suffered from being, um, for want of a better phrase, clogged up, you know, just clogged up with emotion, clogged up with... It's a very strange job in that way, isn't it?
0: Right, 100%. I feel like, actually when you are out of work and you're in those in-between times which you know a lot of actors really struggle with and it's something that is talked about but it's one of the it's the primary thing that you end up doing if you no you're not a really successful actor um and i think it's it's a really hard thing to go through you have to find coping mechanisms and um we talk a lot about that sort of stuff on here because there's a lot of young actors that are coming into the industry and 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 i think it's good to especially hear from someone like you who's worked in some amazing projects and had great performances and things that, um, you can still relate to that even later down in your, you know, down the line in your career, that it's still a, you know, it's a, it's a thing that we all have to sort of get through. It's tough.
1: Yes. It's a strange thing because you think, Oh, should I go down this path and start making that my cycle? You know, should, should, if, if it's not going to be all the time, because it's not a nine to five, even if, even if you're working like I'm working and it's you're doing a lot of you know, able to be quite prolific, thank God, there are still these large chunks of time when you're not actually doing day to day work. Um, and it's it's difficult to put the pieces of your life back together in that time as well, uh, or to even figure out who, who you are in all of this because you've spent so long occupying the mindset of somebody else. So, in so many ways, I think I wish in a way that they taught us that. It, drama school you know sort of how to cope with Mm. not being creative or how to be creative when you're not doing the thing that you think that you should be being creative in (laughs) you know
0: 100 percent is is there um something that you do you like have hobby that you do or do do you write obviously I know you produce you're starting to produce and you've got your production company mother sucker which I absolutely love the name I'm sure a lot of people have told you that but um how do you feel that time when you're in between yeah
1: so um I've produced for about I've had my company for about 12 years now and that's been really interesting (laughs) on many levels (laughs) um and I've also been producing independently um but you know I don't in in I don't in any way see that as an extra um as a sort of hobby or a a relief or a release or anything like that, aside from a work, I see it as like another another branch of another arm of my of my of my actual work, um, and something that I just ended up doing because out of necessity because I couldn't keep listening to myself moan anymore, without actually stepping into action and um, doing something about it. So uh, that's been fantastic and and very busy and um, but. If For my own part, music is a huge part of my life, always has been. And I think, um, especially as a theater actor or if you have any kind of relationship with verse or classical theater or anything like that, I know so many classical theater actors who um, are huge music enthusiasts. Um, And that's something that, And I make music as well, but that feels like mine. That's not something Mm. that's Mm. that's shared, if you know what I mean. Um, Reading. I'm a huge, avid reader.
0: (laughs) Have you got a book that you're reading now that you would recommend to the audience, something that you're enjoying?
1: Uh, Well, I'm actually reading a couple of things at the minute. I'm reading, I'm still getting through... uh, This is an interlinear translation. This is like... (laughs) An interlinear translation of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is very interesting because I have read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales before many years, many moons ago, 20 years probably ago, um, but I've never read it with an actual interlinear translation which tells you exactly what's happening oh, wow. in English as well as, you know, the historical uh, yeah, yeah. blank English that it's written in. Um, and it's very bloody helpful I tell you because you can really go off piste with stuff like this you can really think that you're reading about a genital and it's actually gentle folk as an example um it's really interesting (laughs) I didn't know that you could get that (laughs) (laughs) um and I'm also reading a book uh first century after I read a lot of things at the same time just because I feel sometimes you're in different moods aren't you pick up something and um i'm not i'm not really a purist in that sense where i just read one thing uh, obsessively and then finish it and then start something else and i i'm normally, i've normally got six things on the go for different parts of my brain mm-hmm. um i'm reading the first century after beatrice um which is a, a, an extraordinary novel that i picked up in beirut i was just in beirut my other half is lebanese and so uh we just went over there for a couple of days and I got loads of uh got loads of reading material when I was there.
0: Oh nice so you when you're traveling around you kind of look out for that you go into little shops and see if you can find something that will interest you on your travels that's nice.
1: I think there's something that, that there's something about for me something about being around books that's really or books as we would say in Newcastle that's really um Calming. I also feel the same way in graveyards <laughs> I feel so calm in a graveyard two very different things <laughs> <Is it? laughs> probably because it's all over you know mm, mm. <laughs> and, like you couldn't get any better perspectives just loads of people literally at peace yeah. um but no I get
0: that I get that that does make sense
1: yeah. And That's and, and the, of course the the the, the true, the golden the sweet spot is to be in one of those graveyards like Highgate Cemetery where loads of literary figures and politicians are all at rest because then you feel sort of like you're ticking two boxes like <laughs> Highgate Cemetery's got Karl Marx, I think but it's also got Oscar Wilde. So you know, that kind of things. It's I find line up. Yeah, you feel you're in good company. <laughs>
0: Well, that's nice though, because wherever you go in the world, you can fill a piece. If you go to a graveyard, you could just get a book out. And there's something about the smell of a book as well. Um, especially if it's something you've got from a charity shop or, a, you know, a book that's traveled and had, you know, it's
1: got its own story. Yeah, I, I get that. It kind of feels like you're taking a part of home with you. Um, and one that's been passed on. There's nothing greater than a book that's been passed yeah. on with people's notes and thoughts and musings in it. And then you get to sort of keep it and you, you're gonna look back years later. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing more special. And I'm not really sure, forgive me because I don't I, like ecologically or in terms of the environment, I don't know what the best thing is to do, whether it's to have a book and to reuse it and reuse it, or whether it's to read something on a piece of electronic equipment that then has to be broken down into some landfill. I'm not sure I, what the yeah, best I'm thing, sure. but I do much prefer not having uh, light going because li- I feel like we've got so much light going into our eyes all the time with phones mm. and stuff. Uh, yeah, you I end like
0: up that. getting tired and that, I and mean, that's like with Kindle, that's quite a good in-between where it's, it's kind of a screen, but it's kind of matte. It's that weird thing yeah. and at least you can then read as many books as you want on that.
1: But, but you're um, right, it doesn't have the smell.
0: Yeah, it's different. There's a nostalgia, and then when you've got the dog ends on the end like pages, and it it feels loved, and and feels like it's you know been read. Um, but I, I was gonna <laughs> completely gone off on a tangent, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, <laughs> now for a quick break. Are you a writer and director, actor, costume designer, perhaps makeup artist? Are you interested in camera? This is the place to share your journey. We want to hear from you. How did you start your career? Has it started yet? And perhaps if you're feeling brave, share with us your most embarrassing film-related moment. So slip into our DMs at Life Film Pod on Instagram. Check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash film, where you'll get episodes early and uncut amongst other treats. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you enjoy this episode, please leave us a positive rating. Add us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at LifeInFilmPod And find our video episodes on YouTube by searching Elliot James Language, Life and Film. Essentially, please like and subscribe everything. It makes a huge difference. Thank you. This is also a space we'd like to fill with sponsors and advertisement for like-minded podcasts. So please get in touch. And back to the show. Obviously, with um, you going into producing and having your production company... To Leslie is is a film that you've also produced as well. Did, how did that? Was that? Did that come first? Did you like? Was it something where you know, obviously, Michael and you um, knew that you were going to do this project? Did he obviously came to you? Did was it the producing that came first, or did you always know you were going to be in the film as well? Um, so, my what kind of order did that happen?
1: Different thing. Mother Sucker was I started as a sort of financial, basically a financial cushion to see a film through its entire process of coming to life. So from its inception during through development, during its shooting, and then through distribution and beyond to the point where it can provide financial aid for designing a DVD cover, having a beautiful image, you know, on it, should that <laughs> should DVD still be in existence at that time. But um so that's kind of a different thing and it's it's it is an all female company um and it's uh, you know and most of the crew identify as female um or not or not male and that's a very different experience because i feel like the the just having the the energy that the crew brings to what goes on screen was always the thing that I was interested in. That was the first thought. That was the first seed of that company, mm. um, hence its name, sort of Mother Sucker. You know, sucking from my mother, or or, or something, something to do with a um, a sort of matriarchal approach to filmmaking, basically. And it's yeah. evolved from that in many ways. But uh, that is sort of my company, and and when we produce the, the crew, the structure of the crew and everything's very different, very different sort of setup. When I produce independently, um, of, of course, not everybody wants to work that way, nor would I enforce that on, on, on anyone really. And so, um, there are lots of projects that I am involved in independently as a producer, one of many executives or, um, one of a few producers and that doesn't sort of tick the same boxes as as the ones that my company aim to tick if that makes yeah, any yeah. sense so um so to leslie was one of these and in, uh, an independent thing and for me and um we had a we had an extraordinary amount of creative freedom actually because um we had wonderful investors which is really really unusual <laughs> um and it really felt like we were able to make a film that really that could have really only been made in the 70s, or you know, that that kind of it felt like uh, any risks that we we were, you know, were willing or able to or wanted to take were available to us, you know, and um Michael wasn't having to appease 20 different people and it it wasn't a sort of um the sort of collaborative effort that ended up with nobody really being truly passionate about the final result, you know? So it was um, a very creative process making to Leslie and Michael so, so brilliantly took the intimacy on the page and translated that with Lark and RDP onto the screen. And I feel like throughout the film, there's a, um, there's really no wall between the audience and Leslie. And that's a sort of very very difficult thing to achieve and we shot the whole thing on film and in 19 days which oh, wow. as you know now is a real challenge in terms of processing time and all those extra costs and of course that was a that was a, that in itself was a labor of love so um but but I I think shooting it on film and the immediacy that that um, demands from all of us, from cast, crew, everybody involved, because you don't get as many chances and sometimes you roll out and you don't catch everything. And so you have to be constantly sort of, constantly present in in a really wonderful way, actually. Um, Mm. I much prefer that than doing something 300 times that you know you can do. Especially as an actor, as you know, you get there's a certain point past which you get spent emotionally. So there are going to be some good ones, and there are going to be some really flaccid okay. ones, for want of a better word. <laughs> we always try and re- retain the the turgidness, or yeah. if that's good. Yeah. Uh, but that was but so do, managing to shoot it on film was such a such a wonderful thing, I think, because that really was one of the things that Michael fought for to capture that yeah. that real. Intimate relationship that the audience is able to have with Leslie that gives them an experience of her life rather than this objective, sort of judgmental, distant view of her.
0: Absolutely. I feel like I didn't realize it was shot and film, but and now we want to rewatch it just to kind of take that in. But that's amazing that um that Michael managed to be able to do that. Yeah.
1: Spectacular be quite and quite rare now. A, did you watch it on a small screen or a large screen? Probably I watched it on
0: small, a small screen. screen, unfortunately. But yeah, a,
1: but and it's wonderful on a small screen as well, which is fantastic. Not every film translates to both, but I think it works in in both settings. But on a large screen, it's really quite majestic and spectacular because when you see, it's undeniably on. It's sort of undeniably on film, you know, mm-hmm. and um it's a real experience so it's a real theater experience unfortunately this film hasn't had a a huge theater life um but who knows perhaps if it goes down in some sort of someone's favorite canon that it might it might in the future end up back again in in a cinema you know probably in independent cinema
0: oh yeah of course and I I think because this film's had such a great reception um I mean here as well like uh, obviously the American release is at a different time to to the UK, but it, it, with these sort of films, you never know, like it could have a cult following. It could build over time, like, you know, movies like With Nail and I, which apparently that didn't do so well when it first came out. And now it's like this film that everyone refers back to and they're like, oh, what? it wasn't this huge hit when it came out. Um,
1: I think it's incredible. You hold sometimes new things as shocking, New things are shocking in a way where we don't quite know how to contextualize them. And then also familiar things are, can be disappointing. So, you know, you can watch Goddard's latest creation or, you know, the expectations are so high because you know the breadth of that, that the sort of Titanic breadth of that filmmaker's ability. Mm. Um, but with time, everything settles a little bit, doesn't it? And you can look back and and say, you know, a film that I absolutely love this year is Bardo. And I don't, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Alandra would probably tell me that that was not the right pronunciation, <laughs> but I'm not my, yeah, uh, it's.
0: I'm sure you're correct. I'm dyslexic, so I can't, I can't comment. <laughs> right.
1: Um. It's an extra. I think it's an extraordinary, it's extraordinarily brave feat. And when we look back, the you know the the, the mainstream just pales in comparison to the things mm-hmm. that directors like Alejandro are doing, and and continue to have the bravery to do, and of course now have the resources to do because that because huge platforms have faith in them, and that's a I think that's a very very positive thing. Um, But the expectations are so insanely high on brilliant filmmakers and 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 also on on brand new films. It's like you have almost have one shot. And if it doesn't go well, it, you know, it can be the end of somebody's A filmmaker's career and that's such a it's such a shame that we've really gotten to that place because actually it's a job like everything else we all do jobs well and badly you know we have our we have our good and bad moments unfortunately
0: yeah. the whole world is seeing <laughs> that moment yeah. if it's not good or bad <laughs> or not yeah as the case may be with certain films yeah. where you think well thank god that one was forgotten but yeah. um that can be a good thing
1: <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah it's,
0: it's a brutal it is a brutal industry um I mean talking about the the way that the industry works and everything else what was your in how did you get involved what 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 was your kind of obviously you went to RADA am I right in thinking
1: I did yeah yeah was
0: that was that kind of was there a plan there or was it like you know I'll, I'll try this how, how did it all start for you
1: yeah so I, I did a lot of theatre from the age of about nine and um I would go to school and then afterwards I would normally be either rehearsing or doing a play in the evening. A lot of I had a, had the great fortune to go to a place called the People's Theatre in Newcastle, um, which did a lot of classical theatre and a lot of um really wonderful contemporary theatre um and and all the Russians and everything in between. But it was it was it was a it was great. There were many areas of theatre missing in that in that sort of portion of my education. Um, but I also got to to learn a great deal, especially in terms of sort of classical theatre and stuff like that. Um, it's quite old-fashioned, you know, it's quite, looking back, quite traditional, mm-hmm. uh, or whatever that means. Uh, it, it, we didn't have a large scope of the world, let's just say. We were only really focusing on, on uh, well, normally prevalent white male uh, playwrights if you know what I mean, you know, thinking back, thinking back. Um, so, but that was sort of the first step. Um, and I really liked a lot of those white male playwrights. <laughs> um, it was very inspiring. And then I did it an awful lot, theatre, uh, while I was at school. And uh, some of it very briefly, professionally, some, some semi-professionally, mostly amateur, but normally with, Normally, that amateur theatre with professionals in between their jobs, if you know what I mean, in the Northeast. Um, and that was a great experience. I learned, I learned so much from that. And then I kind of thought that I wasn't really going to do it again past a certain point um, for reasons which shall remain unknown. And then I ended up, uh, I was working in a Chinese restaurant and I ended up very clearly having the thought that I was going to apply to Rada, which I started. I started to do. I was doing the Comedy of Errors, terror, one of Shakespeare's absolute worst plays. Um, <laughs> I was in, and for whatever reason, I hadn't. I hadn't been in a play for a long for a long while, and that spurred me on to sort of the space away from it made me realise that it was something that I just absolutely had to do, and it wasn't really a choice. It was just something that kept coming back to me, you know. Mm. Um, When I wasn't even seeking it out in a sense, which which sounds very that sounds very chosen. It's like the 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 dream for any every actor wants to be sort of, you know, chosen. Um, But it was less like that. It was more, it was more like I was kind of running away from something that felt very uncomfortable Mm. and that I wasn't really able to deal with. Um, So I auditioned and I and I got in and then Terada, and then that was really, you know, I had a classical training in every sense of the word and that went you know pretty well and then very quickly started making films and and actually very quickly found myself in the studio system which was um mm. completely different experience to th- having yeah, thought about yeah. you know the pinnacle of your life playing you know female Hamlet at the RSC or whatever it was or whatever whatever you'd the height of your aspirations were, to then go beyond that um, and to be in a, in a situation that felt very alien in, in loads of ways, mm. um, took me a while to get used to. And I now feel very, very comfortable. You know, I feel very, very comfortable in the studio system and I feel really comfortable in independent film. And, and I look back now and realize film in so many ways was a thing that had driven me as much as theater because that was the thing that was coming into my living room as a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's,
0: yeah, it's amazing that you, because you have done a real sort of s- selection of, as you say, like going from, you know, plays to, I mean, I was looking at, obviously your earlier credits, like going from like doing Doc Martin um, <laughs> to, yeah. you know, Oblivion with Tom Cruise, but within quite a short space of time, is a, it must have been a very strange... Um, situation to be in Um, and now the films that you're doing you're doing such a great selection of stuff and it feels like you're doing a good mixture of you know those bigger films you obviously this year alone I mean you've got Matilda, Amsterdam and then To to Leslie Um, just
1: that. I must must also plug the the other film that I have out at the minute it's called Please Baby Please it's by a really extraordinary writer-director Amanda Kramer if you get a chance to watch it it's like an LGBTQ plus West Side Story with no when's that out (laughs) well one song um it's already out it's already out and um we'll send you the information yeah no
0: i'll check that out for sure (laughs) (laughs) a
1: really brilliant voice and i'm about to produce uh her next film with a and kly spang and i are in it together and i i just think she's really somebody to watch amanda kramer
0: Amazing, amazing. I was just gonna say, I've got to wrap up. Um, I just want to ask one more question. This is a tradition.
1: Most my, my most recent embarrassing moment was when we were shooting Amsterdam. And David O'Russell has such a gigantic and brilliant brain, and it's got it's it's in 50 different places at once. And ever, and and so we all are standing around as a company, just waiting for him to unfold what the next plan is going to be. And for some stupid reason, I think that I should repeat what he's saying and 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 process the information out loud. You know. Uh, anyway, so he says something, and I go right. So it's you no. Know, so it's that and that and that and that. Whatever I said, and uh, uh, Chris Rock turned around to me and he said. You know what I like about you? I like that you you know exactly what's going on. And I I didn't I didn't at all. I think it was just panic. I, love that, man. I think it was panicking. Um, but it was it was I mean, that was such a brilliant the whole the whole thing was such a brilliant experience and such in in every way working with David is a humbling experience for any actor, I think, because he makes you feel like you can just walk on water and also you you just in you want to bring every ounce of excellence you've ever managed to muster from anything that you've ever done that was remotely good and just give it to him because you want so much to be part of creating this this strong vision that he has, you know.
0: Mm. I mean, yeah so I just
1: started David A. Russell basically in front of like twenty-five me- mega megastars.
0: Oh yeah I mean the cast in that film is um I can imagine a room full of those people you're gonna anything you say you're gonna feel like did I why did I say that yeah. brilliant thank you so yeah. much and I genuinely I'm a really big fan of yours I really admire how versatile you are because so, so many actors I watch tv and go oh come on mate I've seen you do that before hundreds of times every time I watch your performances I'm like wow it's something completely different so um thank you thank you and well, thank you for thank taking you. the time
1: Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for watching.
0: Be, um, what, what was the film again that you you said, the other one, uh, the name of it, just to make sure baby, that we've got please. it on the... please, please, baby, baby please.
1: please. So it's, it's me and Harry Melling um, and Carl Glusman and Demi Moore and my other half, Kareem Saleh.
0: Amazing. I'll check it out, definitely. Awesome. Right. Thank you very much. And um, <laughs> all the very best with two Leslie and all the other, I mean, all the other movies you've got out at the moment as well. They're all still out. Matilda, obviously, and Amsterdam's only just been out, but good luck with it all. And um, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. It's been lovely.
0: Cheers. Take care.
1: You too. Bye. It's a laughing
0: film, motherfucker. subscribe. <laughs> Thank you to our wonderful guest, Andrea, and thank you to 42 West.